episode two of the Religion Cast podcast. This is Raleigh. This is Scott. I'm Tyler. And we're not talking weird. <laughs> no, we're not. I'm doing an NPR thing. It works. It no. It to- I'm pulling it off. Well, unfortunately for us, anybody who clicked on this link knows that it's not NPR. <laughs> yeah. Yet. Yo. Ooh, goals. So, Scott, what are we talking about? What are we speaking today? We are going to talk on. <laughs> We're going to talk about three different passages in the New Testament. We're going to talk about 1 John 5, 7 through 8. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And then we're going to talk about Mark 16, 9 through 20. Now, those are all in the New Testament. That's a little bit scattershot. Uh, 1 John is an epistle. Um, and then the, the two Gospels, obviously, are different Gospels. Why are we speaking about those three together? The interesting thing about these three passages is that all three of them are cases where... Um, for whatever reason, we have extensive additions to some later manuscripts of the New Testament. So that if you were to open an older translation of the Bible, such as the King James Version, you'd find something very different in these places from what you would find if you opened a more modern translation like the New Revised Standard Version. So we'll take these three passages one at a time, starting with 1 John 5, 7 through 8, and Scott's going to read it to us from the King James Version. Yeah, so here's the King James Version. Uh, It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven... The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And then verse 8 says, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. All right, just for a little bit of a, a little bit of variation, I'm going to read you the NRSV version of that. Uh, 1 John 5, verse 7, we have, There are three that testify. So a little bit... Um, signif- That's just yeah. translation yeah, difference. Just, yeah, a little bit shorter. Uh, and then verse 8, The Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And that's it. So hopefully y'all can see those are two radically different versions of the same passage. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to talk about today is why. Yeah, exactly. A little bit weird. Yeah, that is weird. And there's other weird stuff in the New Testament too. So if you turn to a passage like the Gospel of John chapter 753 through 811, you'll find uh, something unusual in any modern translation such as the New Revised Standard Version or the very popular English Standard Version. And for those of us that don't have every single translation of the Bible uh, memorized cover to cover like Tyler does, we'll tell you what the story is a little bit. Um, It's the very famous story where Jesus is sitting and teaching, and a crowd gathers around him, and a group of uh, scribes and Pharisees bring a woman uh, in front of him who is convicted of committing adultery. And this is the famous, uh, let he who is without sin cast the first stone statement. This is where this is made. Jesus writes in the dirt. Yeah. Draws a smiley face, probably. (laughs) Setting off a scholarly debate for centuries to come. Boom. What was it? Yeah, I'm looking at it here in the in the NRSV and the ESV, and and both there's there's really big brackets uh, right around the beginning of this story. And the ESV actually has a note at the very top. It says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. So again, the question is, why? And this is a big deal, right? Because this is a very famous story. It's very important to a lot of people. But when we go back to the earliest manuscripts we see that it wasn't necessarily present. And it just gets weirder when you turn to a passage like the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, and you try to find the end of the Gospel of Mark there. So if you take a look at the end of Mark, uh, you're going to see at least three different endings if you look at any modern translation. Um, You're going to see the ending at 16.8, or what you might have bracketed as the shorter ending, or what you might have bracketed as the longer ending, or you might see all three all at once uh, stacked on top of each other like a Mark sandwich, uh, which is probably would not taste very good. It's it's really old. It's probably (laughs) stale by now. It's gone bad at this point. So this this is kind of a big deal. Well, why is it a big deal? 
Well, uh, well, 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 it's a big deal because the consensus is that Mark is the oldest gospel that we have out of the four that are canonized and uh, probably others, even, you know, Thomas, there's some argument of whether it's tradition is early or late. Uh, most people are kind of pushing towards late, but maybe around this time. The idea is still that Mark is the oldest gospel that we have, probably. And there's uh, a there's a, a specific term for this, right? Yeah, and we call it Mark in priority, uh, which just means that Mark is prior to the other ones. <laughs> you know, scholars just are... We're always thinking off of clever little tricky words just to sound better than we yeah better than we are. Yeah, they give out all these PhDs. We have to do something with it, right? We got to come up with new Make terms. Make up words. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. ba- Yeah, we're basically getting PhD in creative literature and exactly. creative labeling. <laughs> creative? No, we, we get PhDs in uncreative labeling. <laughs> <laughs> but creative well, writing. How are we going to describe to people that Mark was prior to the other Gospels? Ooh, Mark and priority. Boom. Nailed it. Nailed it. Okay, so coming back to the topic at hand, Mark and priority. If we had to pick one of the three of your hosts who knows the least about the New Testament from a scholarly perspective, it would be me. Explain to me, like I'm five years old, what Mark and Priority is, why we think that it was the first written. Okay, so uh, we talked about it all. I mean, it means that Mark is the first gospel written. If we go too far on this, we're going to get into source criticism. And so that's uh, that's something we want to save for a future episode. I, Definitely. I believe, yeah. Just looking at both Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible yeah. and New Testament uh, issues of source criticism. You're welcome. We, I know you appreciate it when I do Hebrew Bible yes. instead of Old Testament. Uh, but um, if we look to too far into this, we're going to get into source criticism, but the main kind of idea is that Mark is the shortest gospel we have, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't have a lot of the characteristics that the other gospels have, uh, or other gospels like Matthew and Luke, they have the infancy narrative, Mark doesn't. Uh, the resurrection, if you're looking at the end of Mark right there, it's a very odd way to end, and it doesn't give you the kind of full stories that you get in uh, both Matthew and Luke, and then also John. John's got kind of a little bit more. Yeah, no one sees the resurrected Jesus and <clears throat> yeah. Mark. So, so the uh, so the end of Mark is what we're necessarily concerning ourselves with here, right? Oh, I want to throw out one other thing, hmm. and I'm not going to explain it. There's also the idea of the messianic secret, and if you want to know what that is, you'll have to tune into the episode on New oh, Testament source criticism. Man. The gauntlet has been thrown. All right, so we read First uh, John five seven through eight. We described the story from the Gospel of John, and we explained a little bit about the book of Mark to you. Why are we talking about these three sets of verses specifically together now? So we have these three passages we've looked at, and they all have one thing in common, which is that in each of these places, some material has been added to these New Testament texts. And that's a very interesting thing, because usually when people think about the Bible and the New Testament, probably especially, they tend to think of it as a set text, like, oh... John is in the Bible, therefore John is scripture, but there's a whole section of John that isn't in our oldest text, our oldest manuscripts. We spent the last episode talking about how the different books came together to form canons, and now we're actually having to get into the discussion of how are these Right, these now that you know formed. what books, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and the oldest written document, the oldest manuscript that we're calling it, uh, some of these stories and the ones that we've gone through either verses or kind of section stories. We'll call them pericopes. Oh, that's a nice fancy word for just vocabulary word. Little short snap shot. Of yeah, a Scott, story. Scott has word of the day toilet paper. So he, he found that one. Yeah, I go, I go through it way too quick. Though. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Sorry. Derailment on my part. Back to the conversation. Or uh, in the situation of the whole entire kind of end of Mark, that story where the, the resurrection isn't complete, you know, it seems like. Uh, that's sections that you would expect to be in the actual original text. 
and we don't since we don't have the original text, just the earliest copies we have, it's not there. No, and really something like this isn't surprising when you think about how books were transmitted in the ancient world. There was no printing press where someone like had a PDF file of the Gospel of John on their hard drive, and anytime someone wanted it, they printed it off at home. Do you have to use a printing press when you have a PDF on a hard drive? <laughs> Preferably. Okay. Yeah. If you're trying, to be, if you're trying to be efficient, we know wait, that... Gutenberg yeah. clearly oh. was using <laughs> Adobe software yeah. to uh, print off his stuff. But it comes to the fact that when the Bible was transmitted in the ancient world, it was done by people writing these texts over and over, copying from other copies of copies of copies of copies. And, and so there's lots of places where differences can slip in, even so, major so what are, ones like this. what are this. some of the possible scribal errors that we would see then? You're talking about these differences. Um, I mean, there's, there's two or three of them. There's the idea that possibly... Uh, someone's eyes skip down to the next line of what they're writing and they uh, they skip entire lines of text. Well, this is this is going to be good because it helps us kind of work our way back through what we've done. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so we, you know, we want to answer why do we pick these three? Why are they there? Why do we think that they've been changed? And the first one, you know, we ended with Mark. That was the last one. You're like, whoa, there's no resurrection in Mark? Like, oh, there's a little bit, but then it's added on. And why is it added on? Because when people have read Luke and when they've read Matthew and they've seen that in, in Matthew and Luke, you get to the end of the Mar- of Mark's resurrection story and you're like, that's not over, that's not done. And so some scribe could just kind of harmonize it and make sure that you know what happened in Matthew and Luke, it happens in Mark, at the end of Mark as well. And so that's probably why we've got some of the later additions to Mark's resurrection story. And then sometimes you have people adding passages like the first John 5, 7 through 8, when theological ideas arise later in Christianity, such as the idea of the Trinity, um, these sort of passages can sometimes sneak into text. And it's really interesting that that longer text that the King James Version has is not only absent in our oldest manuscripts, but when it does finally appear sometime around the year... 1400? Yeah, 1400. Even in our oldest copy that has it, it's in the margin. It's not in the text itself. So this is some somebody's comment that slipped its way into the text. Yeah. And that somebody who made the comment ends up being kicked out of the church for being a heretic as well. Right? Yeah, so in that's Spain. also very interesting. Yeah, that's, that's kind of like a whoops. Well, at least he had one good thing to but do. That's, that's crazy to think about. We have this thing that somebody literally just made a note, like the equivalent of making notes in the, the margin of a book, something that a lot of us do like in books that we read. Uh, if you're reading a text, you, you make notes on what you're reading and somebody writes that down and it later becomes an actual part of the text. That is that is crazy. Well, I think people wanted, first of all, to justify an idea that Christianity has accepted for a long time as normative. Mm-hmm. And some of you may be sitting there going, okay, so it's not in our oldest text. Why, I mean, is that enough reason to think that it's some sort of addition, that it's not original? And the other answer to that is we have external evidence as well. So we have quotations. We have lots of writings from early church fathers. And these early church fathers who are arguing for the Trinity none of them quote this passage and you yeah. would expect them to since it seems yeah. to so strongly support their case. Yeah, if they're, if they're fighting for this argument um, for the Trinity, this would be a very good thing to have on their side, a very good piece of scripture. Um, there would be no reason for them not to use it if they had it at their disposable. Right, so we have both... <laughs> at their, at their, dispos- at their disposal. <laughs> not their disposable. <laughs> at their garbage disposal. <laughs> so we have both internal evidence, the manuscript traditions, we have external evidence, a lack of quotations from early church fathers, and we have this process where we can imagine a scenario where someone would want to add this to a text, whereas it's much more difficult to imagine the other way around. Why would someone take this out of the text if it was original? Yeah, if you're trying to fight for a unified theological view of the Trinity... 
you're not going to want to pull this out because this is going to help you out. Yeah. Um, so it, it just makes a lot less sense for this to be removed rather than be added. Right. So those three reasons are really why we think this is not an original part of the text of First John. Yeah. And in the same way, you know, we think that that abrupt ending of Mark where it ends at uh, verse eight uh, is probably the original because of the internal evidence that we have. Where in the oldest manuscripts, you know, you don't have verses nine through 20. Uh, those don't show up. And again, you can imagine a scenario where if you had those verses in the oldest and the in original manuscripts or in whichever early manuscripts we can find, right. um, that you would retain that. You wouldn't take it away because it helps give you the story. It gives you more of the story rather than just kind of this odd ending where uh, the women who are there at the, at the tomb run away and they say nothing to anyone because they're afraid. So, right, we can imagine someone adding that stuff, that whole long ending in, but taking it away is much more difficult to imagine. Mm -hmm. So what about external evidence? Do we have any of that for this particular issue to help us decide one way or the other? Yeah, that's that's a trickier question. It seems like we don't have a lot of external evidence or maybe even any at all. Uh, And we're using the terms internal evidence and external evidence. And and what that means is internal evidence is the evidence within the text, within the uh, the manuscript tradition. Um, just within all of the copies that we have, uh, the stuff that we can find in there. And external evidence is anything that's written outside of the text, anything that's written uh, about that text in general, people that are talking about uh, a passage or something, how they refer to it. Um, And so that's kind of what what we're doing with internal versus external. Um, But for Mark, you know, there's not, it doesn't seem to be a lot of external evidence. Um, I guess you could say that when if if this kind of mark and priority exists, you've got Matthew and you've got Luke who write very different uh, endings to the gospel. And so you've got some different stuff going on outside of Mark uh, and the tradition kind of continues uh, and, you know, people start adding different resurrection stories. And and so um, that kind of leads us into a different realm of oral tradition, what other traditions are out there before the texts are even written down, which is an important thing because before these texts are written down, a lot of this is an oral story. We're in an oral culture where people are, you know, they're speaking, they're, they're telling stories to telling one another. Telling stories, yeah. not writing stories. And it's not, you know, people, there's, there's leeway to make things up and to kind of add. And uh, we have a professor who'll say renegotiate uh, in, in this whole kind of oral performance of telling these stories Sometimes you add things in just to see what you can get away with and make the story a little bit better for your audience. Yeah, but we don't, we can't, we can't kind of get to that necessarily. And, and to simplify not- that idea, let's think about it this way: um, it's the idea of you have the uh, kind of the the structure of a joke, right? Uh, we we get onto Tyler for this because he uh, he can make a a five uh, second joke take five minutes and even longer. So you have these these ideas, this joke, this framework that you're operating off of, and you. Uh, you expound upon it, right? You throw your own spin on it, your own twist. But your audience knows that there has to be a setup and a punchline. Exactly. And, you know, you can work within that framework to do lots of different things. And I think it's also important to note that when we talk about these, it's not just people are making stuff up. It's just that there's a lot of traditions floating around about Jesus and not all of them necessarily make it into our written texts. Mm-hmm. So to, to round out Mark, to kind of, we're, we're kind of done with it, but we want to just finish up entirely with Mark before we move on. Uh, there could be some of these other oral traditions around that just don't make it into Mark. Or we could have a written tradition. Like we could, there could be more to Mark's ending than 16, eight. 
and we just happened to have lost it from every manuscript. Yeah, it could have been old manuscript. It could have been eaten uh, by mice. Some guy could have used it to blow his nose. Caught on fire. Torn. Uh, just rotted. Mark Mark might not have liked. He, he just been like, oh, this this is terrible, garbage. Throw it away. Threw it away, and then never, and then but had then a heart he, attack and died, and yeah. never finished his book. Or he threw it away, but he left the other sixteen chapters just sitting out, and was like, okay, that's you know whatever. So the point is, is that I mean, when we say old manuscripts, we don't mean very well preserved things in the first place. We're talking about like pieces of paper that are almost two thousand years old, um, and many of them look exactly what you think two thousand yeah, so, year old so pieces of paper would look like. Surprisingly, paper doesn't hold up very well. No, it really doesn't. It's great doesn't. because things from the tenth century BC we have perfect copies of. You know, it's they're written, written on clay, written on clay or stone. But then you get something that was written a thousand years after that, and it it doesn't hold up. It just doesn't do very well. Yeah, but paper looks awesome. <laughs> Papyrus, that stuff is just so fancy. And it's the best font there is, too. Oh. <laughs> I think you're forgetting wingdings and things. That's true. So, but the point is, is though, we wanted to say that there could be another explanation for Mark's ending. And that's the one that most scholars probably would tend to, which is that it's the end. Uh, 16.8 is the actual original end. That's where it's supposed to stop. And you're kind of either supposed to be like, oh, what just happened? Or uh, you're supposed to have kind of a sense within this narrative of like, yeah, that seems appropriate given what's just happened and everything, uh, that this would be a good tie. So there's a lot of theories as to, you know, how it actually fits Mark. And uh, and maybe we'll get into that or maybe we'll kind of give you some uh, some other um, resources to, to look at people that think that Mark ends there in a good way. Personally, I like the idea that uh, the author of Mark, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, does he uh, throughout the entire book, we have the... Uh, the the messianic secret where Jesus tells people not to talk about him. Oh, you ruined the surprise. And then, uh, oh, it's, spoiler alert. <laughs> if you haven't read the book of Mark, there's this thing called the messianic secret where Jesus tells people not to tell. Yeah, it was going to be a preview of coming attractions. Ah, well. And then at the very end, uh, he tells the women who uh, see him at the at the tomb to go tell people about him. The angel does. The angel does. Sorry, not him. And then uh, they they run away and they don't tell anyone. Fine. Since since Raleigh spoiled our thing, you'll have to tune in next time to learn about the naked kid who runs away in Mark. Maybe not next time. Maybe not next time. In the future. Or just tune in next time expecting that and then just keep tuning in next (laughs) time and next time and next time. I really wanted to hear about the naked kid and Mark this time. Going back to oral tradition, uh, which we talked about a little bit there with Mark and we talked about external and internal evidence and things. um, That helps us get to the last lingering issue, which is the uh, that big old... We'll call it the pericope adulteri. The which, story of the woman caught in adultery. Oh, oh, good. Yeah, good translation for me there. Uh, and John 7.53 through 8.11. Now, this text is a little different than the other ones that we've been discussing because it's not just a case of is it there or is it not. Now, in our oldest manuscripts, it isn't there. But even when this text does start showing up in manuscripts, sometimes it's at John 7.53, 8 through 11. Sometimes it's in one of two or three other locations in John. Sometimes it's in the Gospel of Luke instead. And this tells us something very interesting about this story, which is that what we have here is probably an independent tradition about Jesus that was respected in the church, loved in the church. I mean, even in the modern day, let he who is without sin cast the first stone is a very well-known saying. Yeah, it's not hard to imagine that this is something that people really agreed and kind of wanted, wanted. to... Yeah, they wanted... Not only did they want it, but they thought it was important and that it meant something. And so it's it's easy to imagine a scenario where this is this is a story that's being used within early first century, second century churches that, you know, people are holding on to. And maybe, maybe there's liturgies and preach preaching, you know, homilies coming off of this as well. 
Um, but what we're seeing in the manuscript tradition is something rather interesting because because this is a story about Jesus' teaching, it could go, it's not like the ending of Mark where that has to be at the end, right? The resurrection of Jesus can't come before his birth, but this story could come almost anywhere. And that's what we see in the manuscript tradition. So we're almost seeing like a written form of what we talked about when we talked about oral performances negotiating kind of with these stories with traditional material. And this brings us back to one of the issues, you know, the whole kind of issue of why we brought these three passages up in the first place is because a lot of times you'll hear from people either, you know, telling you or telling you through their keyboards on Facebook. Uh, they'll, they'll say, you know, all scholars want to do is to rip these sections out of the Bible. People are changing the Bible. Yeah, it seems like, um, I mean, this might be a little bit ridiculous, but it seems like the image that most people have in their minds is that that scholars are these like cartoonish mustachioed bad guys and the Bible is the damsel in distress that they have roped down to the train tracks and we're just sitting there rubbing our hands and cackling like it's some sort of thing one like page we're, at a yeah, time. Like we're, like the we're, devil is the train. Yeah, we're just <laughs> <laughs> But like we're like we're sitting there and we're just arbitrarily ripping things out. You know, it's it's fun for us. It's fun to take something out of the Bible and go, yeah, this is important to you. Let's get it out of there. And but that's really not the case. We're doing it for a reason. And hopefully we've demonstrated that those reasons aren't based on any bias against the Bible. We're simply scholars who work on the New Testament are engaged in the project of trying to recreate uh, something as close to the original yeah. versions of these things as they possibly can by looking at manuscripts, yeah. by weighing the internal and the external evidence, yeah. by creating those scenarios that we talked about where can you imagine it going one way or the yeah. other. And we want it to be accurate more than anything else. We want accuracy. And this belongs to, uh, I mean, this is an ideal for people both belonging to a faith tradition and not belonging to a faith tradition. If you see something that you say is probably not in the original text, whether or not they subscribe to it by their own faith, they're going to want the text to be as true to the original as possible. For instance, the special edition of Star Wars stirred up some very strong feelings. <laughs> We're not even going to go there. Oh gosh, you'll have to excuse uh, Harvey barking in the background if the listeners at home can hear him. Uh, we've got, we've got. He's Har my brother. Yeah, <laughs> Harvey's a Harvey's He's a actually a six foot tall invisible rabbit. <laughs> Harvey's my dog. He's uh, hanging out in our living room playing with uh, playing some soccer with Tyler's kids. So if you can hear my kids, sorry about that, too. <laughs> They're my brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, why don't you take us home here? So we talked about uh, kind of right there, original manuscripts. And, and one of the whole kind of big reasons that we have to do this in the first place is that we don't have these original manuscripts. The earliest ones that we have don't date to where we think they should be. Uh, and so we've kind of, we imagine there's something before them, which we're probably right. Um, I'd say we're probably right a lot, but you know, we are 100% right it's okay. that it, the gospels are older than the year 250. That is true. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm probably right is the motto of every single Bible scholar in the entire world. That's, I think you have to like, a, uh, you have to sign a document to say, I'm probably right. Even when you know you're a hundred percent wrong. Yeah. Tyler says, uh, but he just goes with, I am right all the time. I was about to say, well, that was my disagreement is actually <laughs> there's that there's at least 5% of Bible scholars who just say, I am right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, Oh, yes. I said that's right. <laughs> you are right. Yeah. So to just kind of end us on a cool note, uh, even though we don't have, you know, some of these things in the earliest manuscripts, it's still a really cool process that we get to see of this renegotiation phase. And we're still in it. Uh, and we talked about it earlier. And, you know, now you're kind of seeing that you're in it as well, because when you pick up a modern translation, you get the NRSV, you get the, the ESV. The BLT. The BLT, uh, the tastiest translation of them all, uh, <laughs> TM. Uh, and that's a verbal trademark, by the way. Uh, whenever you open these modern translations, you're, you're probably going to see something 
uh, with a footnote either or with the big brackets or with even something telling you like not in the earliest manuscripts, uh, you're probably going to see something to let you know that what you're about to see isn't in the earliest manuscripts, but yet it's still there in front of you. You know, it's, it's something that's passed down from generation to generation and it's become so important that, you know, it's not been just ripped out. Right. It kind of gives the lie to the idea that we're ripping things out. They're still there for you to see and you get both views. You get the view of the original text. And if you want it, you have these, you know, very precious traditions that were preserved within the Christian faith tradition. So we hope you've uh, enjoyed our discussion today. We've tried to give you a window into the world of text criticism, which is this process of looking at all these different manuscripts and trying to figure out what the original versions of these texts looked like. And text criticism is something we'll be returning to over and over again in this podcast, probably not only for the New Testament, but also for the Hebrew Bible, because, um, this is one of the most important things that scholars working with biblical texts do. Text criticism has to be done before we can do almost anything else with a text. If you want to know what a text means, you have to know what it originally said first. So, um, yeah, we hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, um, this has been episode two of the Religion Cast podcast. And before we do our personal outros, we like to give a, a little shout out to a charity um, in town every single episode. And uh, last week we uh, mentioned the Athens area homeless shelter. And we're going to mention again on this episode, Athens, Georgia has a lot of homeless people, um, a lot of people who are in need of food and in need of help. So if you have a chance, uh, contact them on Facebook, donate canned food or just your time. Um, They could always use people to help out. So please, please, please give them a look. And uh, yeah, that's our episode. I'm Raleigh. I'm Scott. And I'm Tyler. Bye. (laughs) Bye -bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.